This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 14th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. And on today's show, holy shit, things happened. Uh, <laughs> the summer's over. Politicians are woken up and do- doing stuff, I guess, in advance of the fall sittings, both federally and provincially. Here in BC, we have shakeups in party politics, fights over crime and drug policies, Federally, it seems like every one of the parties, that is the three main English-speaking ones. I did double-check and the Greens have not released a press release in two weeks. Their last one called for federally-owned fighter, uh, water bombers, which that seems cool, but I guess fighters were- been in the Green Party platform for at least a decade or two. <sighs> But the other parties are eager to talk about housing and affordability, which is what's on everyone except the Green Party's mind, it turns out. Um, so we'll get into all of that. First, though, some sad quasi-politicos news. The song you hear off the top of every episode is by Serge Plotnikov, who's a who was actually a BC musician born in Proctor, BC, and he uh, actually just passed away on September 5th in his home, I believe, in Nelson, BC. Um, he's survived by his sons, Ron and Larry, and I believe one of them has gotten in touch with us, as well as his uh, wife, Alecta, and her family. We'll put a link to his obituary in the show notes for anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about the person whose music we use to introduce our podcast. Our thoughts are with the family. Let's jump into the news of the week here in British Columbia. The big thing was the BC Conservatives are an official party again for the first time in a hundred years. Not quite. No, um, less than that. 70? You know, we did the whole greatest premier, Brad. I should remember when the last conservative premier was. But uh, yeah, it's been a while. Bruce Banman, the... MLA for Abbotsford South has jumped ship, uh, citing the laundry list of complaints you would expect to hear for someone going to the Conservatives. He doesn't like the carbon tax. He doesn't like what the NDP is doing in schools and with the kids. Uh, he uh, really wants political correctness to end, and he doesn't believe he can do that in BC United, but he believes John Rustad is the man to work with to achieve that new reality for the province. First, let's talk about Abbotsford South. This is funny. It is the chaos riding. If you get elected from that, uh, chances are you are going to be the source of a news cycle when you do something. Uh, that was uh, Daryl Plattis' old riding, and we got so much entertainment out of that uh, during the last term. And Yes, he jumped to become the speaker and became an independent and allowed the NDP to form government. Prior to that, 
it has a history with the BC Conservatives and defections as well. Yeah, so uh, back in uh, 2012, uh, John Van Donning uh, defected from the uh, then BC Liberals to the Conservatives. So yeah, interesting writing, for sure. Something in the water down there in South Abbotsford. It's a good news day for the BC Conservatives. Of course, they become an officially recognized party because, as we know, the rules of the legislature were changed to allow the Greens to be recognized as a party with just two MLAs. Now, I guess when they change, and that means that the Conservatives will get space on committees and additional debate time. Some of this has to be approved by the Legislative Affairs Management Committee, but I don't think that will be too much of an issue. The real hiccup, though, is because the rules were, I guess, poorly written, it might not be that the Conservatives are eligible for caucus funding despite being a recognized party because it's only like parties with two people who got there at the election and therefore the Conservatives will only be treated as two independents getting 105000 each, so 210000 but the Greens get $603,000. <laughs> That's a, a fairly significant uh, difference right there. I also think part of it, too, was didn't they write in like the top three parties or something? Yeah, uh, there was some like fine detail that made – like it, it was fine at the time, the time because there were only three, but – But also – Shouldn't you be writing rules to be uh, flexible enough to accommodate a bunch of different circumstances? This feels like one of those things they'll probably sort out fairly quickly as soon as the ledge reconvenes. The Greens have no opposition to the Conservatives getting the money. I bet the NDP are happy to do it as well because it just undermines BC United. And I... like. United could oppose it, but it would be really fucking petty. <laughs> the, would be a sign of disunity is what you're saying if they do that? Well, how much of the province do they represent, Scott? <laughs> Let's jump to this Main Street poll. Yeah, so this follows on from polling that came out last Friday, but was conducted from August 29th to 31st by Main Street. And... They found that uh, top line numbers, BC NDP exactly where you figure out in front, though their numbers are lower than other polls have had them at basically 35%. Uh, the real surprise, though, was uh, who was polling number two, which would be uh, the BC Conservatives at 26.6, followed by United at 21.5, and the Greens at a distant 12.7. The non-existent other party is holding four point three percent of the vote. Maybe the eco-socialists yeah, no, sure are back. Like, if we pull up the elections BC registered provincial parties, there'd be like three of them we're not thinking of that. You know, well, oh, there's the rural BC party. Didn't they run like two yes, candidates in the uh, last election? They did not get four percent of the vote province-wide, though. They did no. get enough in those ridings to get some funding, I think. Yes. This is a survey of just 600 people when you're looking at just decided and leaning and Main Street's records. One that people like to mock. I won't say it's good or bad. I'll just say people like to mock it. And that may or not may not be fair. Uh, the NDP sitting at 35% feels wrong unless there has been a shift in the province, which I looked and we don't have many public polls this year. The last public one was in May. 
So who knows? Yeah, I could see why why a few things start to take a bit of a toll. Um, kind of just, I floated my theory on that last week, so I won't rehash it here. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't entirely surprise me, but also, you know, one poll, maybe, maybe not. Not like the top, top tier polling firm anyway. Honestly, the most interesting thing is that second place number. I don't, the real reason we decided to throw this in here was this just compounds a series of good news momentum indicating bits for the uh, conservatives. There's that second place finish back in the recent by-election on the island. There's this. There's now the uh, defection from the BC United official party status. They are kind of on a roll and in a way that uh, cannot be comforting to Kevin Falcon and his team. And yeah. that's where this is really interesting because they've not exactly had a great run of things. They were kind of holding on just by virtue of being the, the obvious not NDP party. And once you burst that bubble, it becomes a lot more dicier for them. They still have a fundraising advantage. They still have more structure, party structure going on. They probably have a bigger volunteer pool, though I gotta imagine that is um, not where it was back when they were government. And just all in, it's it's not great when you have just a steady drumbeat of a rising party on your flank and you kind of stuck going nowhere or going down a bit and what could potentially happen is we could be looking at a situation where you know donors start to split their uh giving a little more the uh conservatives are booed up by this and then it uh gets to the point where you get a real split in the next election and who knows what happens that I mean, we've seen the not NDP party change over a few times in what that uh, particular brand and organization is. It's not a sure thing that's that's what's happening now, but this is also what it would look like if that is what was happening. Yeah, I think the big things Kevin Falcon needs to look out for, and just to verify this poll a little, I saw former BC liberal MLA, but now like anti, never, never falconer, let's call him, Jazz Joe Hall tweeting out that he's seen a couple private polls. So, take it with the grain of salt, but that put the NDP at 40%, but then put the Conservatives in United in a very close race or possibly the Conservatives slightly ahead. So, the vibes are that this poll isn't total trash. Um, the risk for Kevin Falcon right now is that a few bad stories become an, a mass exodus, right? He needs to, it sounds like caucus unity is not that great. Uh, yeah. Given so the fact were... someone left, it seems like other people might be reconsidering their options and he doesn't have a lot to offer to keep that caucus united as he needs to. Yeah. I've heard that there've been rumors of uh, discontented MLAs and, potential floor crossers and you know this 
could be the first one. There, there's potential ones out there. It, yeah, it's there's definitely troubled waters ahead for Kevin Falcon. And you know, more generally, the rebranding I don't think has gone well. There's been no real sign of any gains that have come from it. If anything, there's potential confusion about no one knows what BC United is supposed to stand for, except being United, which they are clearly not, and was in part a terrible name to begin with, because it was very clearly about trying to tell the story about the factionalism within the right of center, rather than anything about what the value proposition of the party is for BC as a whole, and it definitely had a uh, doth protest too much vibe to it. Yeah. So there's that. There's the fact that the party under both branding has kind of been floundering for the past few years, not really knowing what it stands for beyond just not being the NDP, and yeah, all in. I am not sure where the second wind that they would need to actually bounce back from things rather than just slowly bleeding support to the uh, conservatives and failing to make inroads against the NDP would come from. It's really feeling like the party has not really known what it is since like 2010. <laughs> like once Gordon Campbell started going down with his scandals, the conservatives had their heyday they brought in Christy Clark. Things seemed really bad. She like pulled off the 2013 election. On the election eve, it seemed like people, she managed that. And then following that, it was that, oh, we got a bit more momentum and a bit like, we like jobs. We know that. But then by 2017, all of that baggage was starting to catch up again. They still had enough incumbency to like, tie but that wasn't enough to hold on to government and like they haven't been a clear proposition since gordon campbell and even gordon campbell's proposition was being like we're going to be the anti-ndp yeah they which got them which got them quite a lot of government but well yeah i mean there's the we're going to be the party of economic growth free enterprise all that stuff that's faded for sure and it is a party that really feels like it built up a bunch of political and organizational capital in the period you're talking about and has been spending that down with no real work or at least nothing successfully done to rebuild that stock yeah it was a party and built for the fundraising era when you just went around corporate boardrooms got enough money to run a full campaign and they did that now they don't have a they've never had a grassroots in the same way that the federal conservatives have or that bc conservatives are building yeah and it's not like there aren't a bunch of people in that orbit that have experience with that the fact that they never haven't gone down that route is just baffling well they are trying to talk about policy uh, we've talked about a couple of the policies they've released in the past around uh, drugs was one of their first one and the overdose crisis. And today they are talking about public safety. They have a $500 million plan to 
address public safety in the province. This would be spent over three years of their initial government, I guess, if they ever managed to pull that out of the hat. Uh, it's a five-point plan with three bonus points. Uh, it's, it's a very it's confusing... <laughs> and then you can click through to backgrounders and extra policy documents to read the same points in different fonts. And different levels of verbiage? I, I wouldn't not, say not really. <laughs> I, I was I avoided the word detail there because you don't okay. get a huge amount out of the paragraph explanation compared to the bullet point explanation. Uh naming these policies uh very quickly, they would hire cops, they would end decriminalization, they would introduce sentencing options where people could choose from incarceration or secure treatment. I guess this is for drug uses if you needed uh, yeah, it's addiction left treatment. Said there, which is also weird. Because... Yeah, I found that really weird. It's not like if you're arrested for shoplifting, they're going to be like, "Do you want to go to overdose or do you want to go to addictions treatment?" It's not necessarily relevant. Uh, they're going to treat all crimes seriously. They note this includes shoplifting, bike theft, and vandalism. They notably don't talk about money laundering, which was a BC Liberal oversight during their time in office. But I'm. Uh, digging up old bones there. And finally, they would bring civil litigation against drug dealers who caused deaths due to overdose for selling laced product knowingly. I mean, that wouldn't like make sense in the context of decriminalization because, you know, if you make something legal, you do need like legal mechanisms to enforce the safety of that and go after people who sell unsafe products. It's a little weird when paired with some of the other stuff in here. Um, also odd, they talked about getting tough on offenders, and like it's implied that that means repeat offenders, but they don't actually use the word until you get, like click through two different levels of their background or documents to actually come across that. And there was a whole repeat offender uh investigation and report that I think came out when we were on hiatus so we didn't really talk about it but there's plenty of stuff to tackle within that uh, broad category that it's also weird they don't really talk about that very much because you know, if you've asked people kind of what are the public safety problems one of the things a lot of people will bring up is oh hey there's that there's a bunch of repeat offenders who yeah, get arrested, get let back out on bail, break a bunch of more laws, steal a bunch more stuff while they're waiting for a trial or after a very short sentence and are back out offending again. And that's, you know, hinted at that that's something they'd want to look at, but it's not actually spelled out explicitly there. And it's weird if they're making this like top level pitch that that isn't an explicit part of it. Yeah. This has all of the written by... It feels kind of written by a committee or written by some timid staffers who are afraid to kind of swing for the fences very much but also like want to center this issue as some of the parties talking about so it just ends up going nowhere and you know if you are concerned about crime 
beyond the, hey, we're concerned about crime top-level headline, it doesn't really feel like this is the bucket of policies, the five or eight of them that are really the thing you'd want to sink your teeth into on that and rally behind. I should say the bonus three things, the further initiatives are supporting police, which includes body-worn cameras and a dedicated hate crimes team. Uh, there's prosecuting offenders, which is tougher stance on bail and equal access to justice by implementing community courts for minor offenses, but then having mandatory drug treatments as a sentencing alternative. So it's like a mixed bag of stuff. There's combating crime, which is kind of a mix of like investing in after school programs, but also like trying to stop the import of illicit drugs. There's a lot of like rhetoric you would expect from a center right, right wing, you know, crime and safety policy in here. But like you say, the like specifics are almost watered down or missing. Yeah, it feels like it, it's like a fat simile of what a tough on crime policy would be. Without actually, I, being it, it does lean into like we should go back to the drug war, and that's not surprising. It's disappointing to me, but even that's like a fairly watered down version of that. And the stuff like the bail stuff. Um, yeah, there's real problems with people offending while on bail, but it's A, not clear there's a huge political opening on that at the provincial level because EBs have actually been one of the premiers that have been most vocal about hounding the federal government on reforming the stuff. And it's, importantly, a federal uh, bill that got passed a few years ago that's uh, kind of the thing everyone sees as where the big change was that made things worse. So it's like not clear this is even something the province can really do much about. And I, the NDP is not giving a huge amount of political space to occupy just as aware of EB sitting on this. Yeah, we can probably move on from this quickly because we still got lots of other stuff to get into. But one of the things that's actually specific in here and kind of weird and not necessarily bad is one of their ways to try to fill the RCMP vacancies and police vacancies across, across the province would be to work with the feds to allow RCMP to be trained at a facility in the Fraser Valley. Right now, if you want to be an RCMP officer, you have to go to depot in Regina. And that's true whether you go and are a RCMP officer in Saskatchewan, BC, or Nova Scotia. And there's, you know, advantages to that in terms of standardization, but there's also real constraints in terms of getting officers out. And the RCMP have a litany of uh, complaints against them and recommendations on how they should be reformed. And working to open a new facility in BC isn't the worst idea, honestly. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's, yeah, like you said, something that's been talked about on some of those various uh, commissions and reports into the RCMP over the years. Maybe it's they should endorse a BC provincial police like they did when the Reform Act came through consultations. Yeah, I was just actually going to say that. If, if you're at the point where you're opening up a, a training facility for uh, police in BC, like, why not just put everything under one roof it also allow you to have more say in kind of the uh, how policing is run in the province. 
yeah, just why not? It's not you're already planning on dropping five hundred million dollars on this. Like, why not actually put a little bit more and actually go into it? You're clearly not shy about spending money on on this broad issue set. They don't want to piss off Brenda Locke, I guess. No, wait, she doesn't like the RCMP. Which one? No, she's pro RCMP. I got I'm so tired. She she <laughs> likes the RCMP. That's what it is. Yes, I've covered this. There, there's just nothing happening in Surrey. Is at any one they, time they still have this. two police. They still have two police forces, and it's it's fine. <sighs> well, one of the BC United's calls around decriminalization is to ban drug use near playgrounds and um, similar facilities in schools. And the BC government actually scooped them by getting the federal government to agree to that. Uh, amendment to decriminalization in the province. So, as of September 18th, Monday, you will no longer be able to use your uh, controlled drug and substance exemption drugs within 15 meters of playgrounds, spray pools, wading pools, and skate parks. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those cases where, by all indications, the NDP is genuinely being pretty responsive to uh, concerns floated by municipalities, the public, etc. And uh, as a result, they are stupid in the opposition, not giving them uh, very much room to maneuver on this stuff. And also, if this is the sort of project you want to see become something that's long-term, giving ground on a couple small areas like this to maintain the overall legitimacy of it and the eyes of the public is probably a fairly smart strategic decision on this. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I do worry the government is playing defense on the policy quite a bit and not actually defending it. Like it's reacting to criticism, but it's not actually standing up for what the point of decriminalization is. And maybe we're just missing the broader defense of it because a lot of the people who use drugs were frustrated by the rollout because some of the restrictions within it, the amount that is exempted were criticized for being too low. So there's not actually a lot of as much buy-in from the community that they probably would have hoped to defend it. And now the government's kind of looking like they're backing off a bit of it. And there's a chance that opponents to the decriminalization pilot, you know, feel like they got a little bit of blood and, go further, right? And just keep pushing. Like, I want to see this pilot continue. We got some data out today uh, to try to answer, you know, how have things been going after six months? Global News actually did a really good report that I'll just link in the show notes on where things are at. And the things and the and the answer is murky. We don't really know because it's only been a few months and decriminalization was never a silver bullet. It was a hope to reduce stigma, but at the same time, we've had this issue where in many ways it's polarized a lot of opinions and that has made things worse. And there are police still harassing people, which was one of the things that's supposed to turn off with this. So, um, there's data that's come out on this mental health addictions care website and it's buried in a PDF on there. It's kind of interesting and it points more to where they're going to be looking over the coming months and years and I'll be looking at that to see how this rolls out and I'm hoping for additional policies to add on to this because it can't be a standalone pilot and I know it's not but like 
where is the safe supply to give people the things that won't kill them? Yeah, uh, the number in there is uh, 76% for the uh, decrease compared to four years ago in uh, possession charges. Uh, I'm guessing the remaining numbers are probably you know, intent to distribute type uh, possession uh, it's, charges. It says, uh, I pulled this chart up, oh, yeah. I think, uh, somewhere. And grams yeah, it's people who don't. Exemptions doesn't apply or data entry coding errors, so. That's reassuring. You gotta wonder, <laughs> you gotta wonder how many are the that last category. Um, but yeah, overall, like the general vibe is service uses up, um, arrests are down. It's just kind of what you would expect. Um, maybe broader overdose numbers haven't really moved in a positive direction, but like it's early, and like you said, it's not the be all and end all of this, so. It's very much one of those time will tell things. Two more quick stories in BC before we move on to the fun federal news. Just this afternoon, there was a release from the government that there is a new chair and CEO of the BC Utilities Commission. And it's in fact, the guy who had the job when the NDP was last in government from 1992 to 1997, the chair was uh, SFU environmental management professor Mark Jackard, who a lot of people will probably be familiar with who listen to this because he has a lot to say on energy and the environment. Quite an interesting appointment there. What's also quite notable, as Rob Shaw points out and the BC United, is that David Morton doesn't seem to have left voluntarily. (laughs) That's not in the press release, but it seems like he was fired. Uh, we don't know why officially. Yeah, it's also the government was a little frustrated on some of the uh, stuff around the BC Hydro EV chargers, but did that get to the point where they let him go? I don't know. Hard to say. Yeah, BC we'll Utilities Commission for- is also in charge of hydro rates. They're in charge of ICBC rates. And so it doesn't scream to me like Jackard's going to be like just the pushover, although the BC United does point out that he has endorsed the NDP in the past. So that's not the best look for what should be an arm length body. Um, But Jacker does have a pretty strong reputation on his own as an independent thinker. So I'm, I'm curious to follow this and maybe this will be a mistake the government made. But the good news for the government is another follow-up is that they did reach a deal around the Joffrey's Lakes Provincial Park access with the Lilwat and the Nkwakwa nations. These are the nations that had shut down access for most of September except for the long weekend. And the government has managed to come to an agreement with the nations to reopen access after uh, I believe it's after Truth and Reconciliation 19th, Day. So Yeah, until Truth and Reconciliation Day. And then they will come up with a more long-term plan in the new year. So that's a positive win for reconciliation, I guess. And it's a little frustrating for the nations that they had to escalate it to that point to get the minister's attention. Anyway, you can go to Joffrey Lakes if you like it there. Going to federal politics, let's start with like the least 
partisan story, but possibly the most important for context. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, I don't know why I use the full name, the CMHC, has an updated report on how many houses we need to reach affordable levels. Uh, and lot. Yeah, it's three hundred three and a half million on top of what's on track to be built by 2030. Yeah, so that's like one house for every 11 Canadians, roughly. <laughs> or one home. It's At least. It's going to require like a truly gargantuan effort. The CMHC says that may not be possible. Um, getting that many houses in would bring us to 2004 levels of affordability, according to their calculations. And so, like, that would be super cool, but maybe we can deal with. I don't know, 2010 levels, that would still be better than we're at, right? Um, one of the things they note is there's some sh important regional shifts. Ontario is actually less pessimistic than Alberta and Quebec, who are facing increased pressures. Um, A lot of that just because Ontario had some economic slowdowns, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, if your nowhere... affordability strategy is recession it's not a good strategy well it's like i see online every so often people are like we need to slash the cost of housing by half and it's like yes that's possible we just tank the economy yes <laughs> and destroy everyone's equity but i think yeah i think francis bueller at one point had like a you know the dirty bomb approach to housing affordability or something yeah yeah there are definitely ways to decrease uh of housing unaffordability, but you want to make sure you're doing the right ones and not the catastrophic ones. That That's Kretchen on his way out kind of policymaking. Actually, his like on the way out policies were pretty rad relative to some of the other things. But let's talk about what the Liberal government is looking at today. They have some housing policy out this week. Finally, after months of us and everyone else mocking them for talking about talking about a plan. They announced a, they like leaked things and then the day after announced them. So they were like, we're going to have the most novel agreement in Canadian history on housing. And it, it, it was all right. It was, they, they botched the cons. Like if you read the, that, uh, what it was billed as and then kind of the immediate, oh, we're putting $74 million into London, Ontario for, 2000 homes it felt a little underwhelming uh mostly because they buried the actual lead uh in the fine print on that and this is the first uh, money that's coming out of the housing accelerator fund uh on it i don't and know if the they actually buried the lead i think it may have just been they didn't properly like there was a failure of communication right because it wasn't understood and that's on them but I, I feel like what happened is you saw this press release that everyone's eyes kind of glazed over at the explanation of what's happening and just saw the $74 million number and the 2,000 homes number and went, oh, there's the story. It's the numbers. And in this case, it's not actually the numbers. You're getting into it. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the big news is the federal government is finally conditioning uh, money to cities on changing some of the rules that prohibit the housing that actually needs to get built from being built. Uh, in this case, London, Ontario has agreed to, I believe, go up to uh, four unit uh, per lot based zoning. 
uh, made some changes around transit uh, to allow higher densities and broadly rezone the city. It's going to be very interesting to see what actually comes of it. Presumably this has to make its way through the London, Ontario council and everything. Like I'm sure the, the mayor's agreed to it, but the actual mechanism to enact it's no doubt going to be contentious. But yeah, the federal government's finally using the biggest stick it has on housing, which is its spending power. So, yeah, good. Yes. Uh, Mayor Jody Gondek released a letter that she received from Housing Minister Sean Fraser that basically Calgary says... Mayor, to be Calgary clear. Mayor. What did I say? You just said Mayor, which... Yes. Yeah. Not <sighs> everyone knows who Jody Gondek is. Then. They should. Uh, she has basically been told the same thing if they want to get money from the housing accelerator fund they have to end exclusionary zoning and allow at least four plexes or other missing middle housing in the city across the city which calgary is actually working on although it's contentious at uh council right now they have to invest in affordable housing on public lands within walking distance of transit and increase um the streamlining of uh permitting and they have to streamline building permit approvals. So, yeah, it's not it's not exactly the stick that Pierre Polyev proposed. It's more the carrot approach. But the results are in some ways the same. Although it's not like there's targets for housing to be completed so much as there's you will make it easier for private sector to build housing, and we will give you some funding to build nonprofit housing. Yeah, which is all case, good. Yeah. The conservative one actually does have a target associated with it. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, 15%. Um, which, if it compounds, that's actually pretty powerful over a stretch. If it's just 15 like, you know, one baseline year and that doesn't change, the less so. One of those things where the devil's really going to be in the details. And same on this one. Like, I think pretty much as we record this. Vancouver's debating kind one of the policies that would generally fall under this around multiplexes, and I haven't followed it as closely as I normally would have, but uh, my understanding is that the city staff have basically structured the thing to have as little possible uptake on it as can be, and if that's the sort of thing that would get the check from the federal government being like, Oh yeah, no. On paper, you're allowed to build uh, four homes on a yacht, on a lot, but it's structured in a way to basically make it uneconomical to do so. You haven't really changed anything, so that's going to be very interesting to see. And and it's really going to be where this thing succeeds or fails. And I'm not convinced the Liberal government is necessarily going to uh, be able to stick the land in on that. I mean, they haven't done a great job in a lot of files when it comes to really getting the details right. So in some yeah, ways, really, maybe just having like a, a metric like that 15% of the Conservatives' plan has some benefits because if it doesn't, if it's done in a way that doesn't actually get the end result, it doesn't qualify, whereas... You know, the liberals are doing one of those things where they measure the inputs but aren't controlling for the output. So 
who knows? Yeah, they say the Housing Accelerator Fund is targeting 100,000 homes, which is good but modest, <laughs> right? We said we need 3.5 million and 100,000 across the country is I was enough. also looking up uh, the pl- their uh, 2021 platform where they first uh, pitched the Housing Accelerator. And uh, in that platform, that 100,000 was supposed to be uh, built by 2025 and... It is near coming to the end of 2023. Almost can't believe it's halfway through September already. Um, but yeah, we're in the back stretch of 2023, and they are just rolling out the first one of this. So they're not exactly showing the sense of urgency that uh, three million and seven year, three and a half million seven years from now would uh, necessitate. Just to really emphasize what you're saying, though, uh, to come back to that point on how just upzoning isn't necessarily enough, I'll, I'll just reference Jimmy Thompson had a really great piece for the Walrus earlier this summer on Victoria, BC, that did do the upzoning that people called for to allow fourplexes. And in the first, like, I think it was six months, zero people applied to upzone their uh, municipality or zero people upzone zero people applied to upzone their lot and the reasons were like varied from parking requirements to setback requirements to all just these like fine print details that just made it pointless when you could just tear down and build a new house as easy so that's the kind of stuff where like the regulations do actually matter. Like sometimes people say we need to cut the red tape and it doesn't mean anything. Here's the specific things that are getting in the way. And it's not the zoning then, it's the permitting issues. Yeah, housing, yeah that, the housing drive really is one of those things where like excessive red tape is a huge part of the problem. And um, what California's experience, they've been doing state level housing bills for years now and it really has been a case of whack-a-mole where they hit one of these things and then yeah, some municipalities that don't want to upzone will uh, try and figure out a way to get around it and put in some other requirements. I think at one point, like Mountain View, California, tried to designate the entire city a wild, or like an endangered species area for mountain lions or something. Uh, I don't think that one en- ended up going through, but yeah, it kind of shows you the creativity on that. So. It's been a case where they've had to slowly chip away at some of this stuff uh, year after year on it. The other policy the federal government announced today is, in fact, in act today, uh, there will no longer be GST on the construction of new rental apartments. This is something that everyone, including the liberals, have called for for many years, but the liberals just kind of decided for quite a while to just not do it was in their um, 2015 platform. Yeah. So, it's you know, one of those things better late that, than never, but eight years is uh, not exactly rushing things. So, this will help the margins of a few developments go through for sure. The Conservatives and NDP were both critical of it for not happening sooner. Um, weirdly enough, the Conservatives, and we'll come back to the Building Homes Not Bureaucracy Bill that Pierre Poliev is going to bring forward soon, have said that they would only apply the exemption for the GST for new rental homes priced below the local market average, which kind of mirrors the NDP's previous desire to waive the federal portion of the GST on the construction of new affordable rental units, which here the 
the liberals of all parties went maximalist on a housing policy for a change, even if it's like one of the marginal ones. Yeah, like it is very on brand for the NDP to try and like target things to only the affordable housing and like end up undercutting the broad effect of it. The conservatives, though, you would totally expect them to just be like, oh, broad based tax cut, where do I sign up? Um, so it's, yeah, oddly would put the qualifier on that. Maybe it's trying to be a bit of a shield from accusations there. They would try and be subsidizing wealthy landlords or something. But like, yeah, it's a feels discordant a bit on that. So yeah, as I mentioned, Pierre Polyev got some news today as well because he announced his housing plan, which was a re-announcement that got covered in CBC as a, I don't know, this CBC article was just like bullet points from the press release. It was wild. Um, but they yeah, it's all the stuff- right up around it too. Yeah, but yeah, they, it, they did. It, there's a section where there is bullet points, but it's a fairly long article. Oh um, yeah, but it's just like repeat t- doing running through the conservative talking points, which like it gives you the details of what the housing plan is. Although we we knew those six months ago. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, just the well, news is they're going to be in a private members' bill, which that is news. Fine. Yeah, and <laughs> politicians weird. of all stripes like to uh, reannounce things. I mean the. The PC government just did, what, their third re-announcement on uh, the Surrey Hospital project this past week. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. On uh, that. Um, as a reminder on the substance, we talked about the tying uh, federal funding to getting 15% more homes built every year. Again, what what exactly does that mean in tangible numbers? matters but there would also be big bonuses for municipalities that exceeded that uh there would be Which a I guess would be kind of like the housing accelerator fund yeah there would also so be a NIMBY. maybe it's universal like if you just have thousands of homes being built you can just have money even if other people are building them uh there's going to be a nimby fine if you're blocking construction because of egregious opposition from local residents i don't know how you make that workable yeah, I, I do notice that the uh, language about having a hotline on that doesn't seem to have made it into this one. And then they would also accelerate approval or get the CMHC to accelerate approval of financing and threaten to hold with withhold bonuses from staff if they fail to do so. Sure. I feel like that one may be fairly <laughs> newer. I can't recall if that was in the last yeah. one or not. Eh, you know what? Fair enough. Like, it's a bonus. Like, if you're not actually delivering on the stuff you're paid there to deliver. Not again, a bonus seems fair on that. And they would sell off 15% of federally owned buildings so the land can be used for affordable homes. Uh, We've talked about that one in the past, and it's hard to really inventory how much of the federal government's holdings is useful. Like they do own buildings in urban areas, but they're often for Service Canada facilities or ministry offices that are valuable to have in regions like you know you probably there's probably pretty confident there's a fisheries office in vancouver uh, i think on the north shore um either way yeah you want that something similar was also in the liberals 2015 platform this really feels like one of those things where it's 
something that opposition parties just promise as a matter of course. And then when they get into government, they find, oh, it's actually more complicated. It's not as easy to do. But, you know, not having the uh, the staff resources to actually check this out ahead of time. It's, oh, it sounds like a good idea. We'll plug it in. Like, I'm pretty sure we were to dig through past NDP platforms. There would also be something about using federal lands in there. Yeah, they wouldn't sell it off. They would just convert it to housing <laughs> as a public housing project. But, yeah, most of the federal land as we've talked about in the past, is either parks or national defense, neither of which are particularly appealing for housing in most cases. I mean, that wasn't the only policy the conservatives were talking about. It almost got like, I've almost completely forgotten that last weekend was the federal conservative convention that you yeah. know featured as everyone talked about that, like flying guitar solo top gun thing. Yeah, it's real sad, like how much happened this week. I was expecting that to be the big thing we talked about. Um, by all accounts, since that's what you mentioned, I watched the uh, speech. Well, I was, I think, busy like, doing some housework or something. It was a long, like, hour-long speech you gave, but yeah, solid one, hit, hit the right points. Like, it's the vibe you definitely get is this is a party and a leader that is ready to contest and win the next election, and... Yeah, solid week for them. Uh, the Liberals here have put a couple points on the board on housing, which, man, it feels weird that like just putting out a couple announcements is actually like a huge improvement for them. But uh, that's where we are on this. It'll be interesting to see if that actually sticks and follows through and, up and helps arrest uh, their slide in the polls. But uh, that all may be a little... Uh, too late on that because even if the, even if this stuff does have an effect it's probably going to be a couple of years before it really actually starts showing up in prices for the positive stories the conservatives pulled out of the weekend they also got their members to approve a policy limiting transgender health care for minors and the like article going down through the kind of social issues that were approved really reads like Jordan Peterson was just on stage saying, this is, makes me angry and they approved it 69% to whatever or sometimes higher. Uh, they're going to ban in federal buildings, I guess, single-sex bathrooms. Like ban some single-sex? Well, require. Surely oh, sorry. Require yeah, demand single-sex spaces. I was thinking universal bathrooms. I'm getting real tired here. Um, they're against vaccine mandates, which isn't a surprise. Uh, they're against race-based hiring. So, oh, and they really like oil and gas and they dislike the new passport. Um, there was also a weird press release and petition from the conservatives this week about like, you should let us have our natural health products, which is some real libertarian vibes going on there. That one was actually tweeted out by Pierre Polyev. <sighs> going for the Joe Rogan crowd on the supplements there. Yeah, those uh, conservative green... Uh swing voters as well oh conservatives have a long history of this kind of stuff on the libertarian range yeah there's definitely a libertarian element on that but like how oh mad for a long time like that that was the sort of thing that was much more strongly associated with kind of the granola greens absolutely that. um i mean at the end of the day like convention um policy motions don't really matter at all leaders are free to follow them or not and uh 
in kind of breaking with form, Pirapalia was out in front of the, before the convention started, basically saying, yeah, I mean, we'll look at them, but, you know, we're going to do what we're going to do, kind of regardless of what uh, the membership passes. So, yeah, the, the real test is going to actually be what gets in the platform, what gets run on uh, on there. Because, uh, yeah, in our leader-centric system, conventions actually don't matter all that much as policy development. Uh, and let's finally bring it back to the NDP to close off the show. They also are pitching a bill for this fall, a private member's bill, the God damn it, lowering prices for Canadians act. We're we're just in the rhetorical bill naming I mean, era. It's not new. We haven't We've hit had- peak levels of that until they uh make them into acronyms. Harper did some of that, didn't he? I can't remember. I, like the thing that always comes to mind is the Patriot Act, but that's yeah. American. Uh, there may have been like a couple of those, but like that's when you really turn it into an art form. Is turn it into like an acronym that also means the thing you're trying to run with. Yeah. Uh, in the lowering prices for Canadians bill, Singh promises to try to overhaul the Competition Bureau, and this actually mirrors a number of. A couple other side announcements the Liberals dropped today that they also are going to look at amendments to the Competition Bureau. Um, the Liberals also said they are going to haul the CEOs of grocery stores together to demand a plan to make groceries more affordable. So basically force them to collude, but for good this time instead of price fixing bread. Um <sighs> And if that doesn't I mean, work, they will tax them, maybe. Remember TBD. when you promised to uh, do that with uh, the telecoms and now Canada has some of the cheapest cell phones in the world? My cell phone costs $25 a month and I get 27 gigabytes and no one is going to match that because I got a super sweet Shaw deal that Rogers has to honor for five years. Yeah, I mean, one-off deals that people luck into aside... Canada is still like very unaffordable on the telecoms. It is the we're we are going to make a big show of it. Just is not it something that's uh, being proven to be particularly effective on this. <sighs> Calling the CEOs in, they already did that through the yeah. parliamentary committee hearings and the competition bureau hearings, and like giving them one more chance to voluntarily make prices affordable. It doesn't seem. Like but it's that, going to do anything. And also, unlike telecoms, the grocery industry is one that operates on quite thin margins. Like, this is not a, a high-profit business at all. Um, they, there is not a huge amount of money that can be run from this. It is going to be like trying to get blood from a stone. And you brought up the uh, collusion aspect on this, but... like. When you have very thin profit margins, you start uh, squeezing that out and you may end up getting to be the case where that's going to push out some of the more marginal players. And there are not a lot of those in Canada. Um, The net effect may actually be um, consolidation on that if you start messing around with that and trying to take what is but they are already they are already concluding scott we went over this when we talked about the competition bureau's findings on grocery store prices there's not enough competition they're 
working together to push out small businesses. Yeah, uh, and I'm saying you may accelerate various- that if you uh, go down this route because, like, there's it depends just, on the plan they come up with. But not a yeah, huge relying on extra in here. Um, and like going back to that report, they estimate that it's been something like a an extra billion dollars or so. It's a little unclear if they were if the 2019 numbers in there were adjusted for inflation or not. But like in a country of 40 million people, we're talking like an extra two two to two fifty dollars a month uh, in difference it's going to make like there's just not a lot of give there even if you were to uh squeeze the uh profits down further on this and the we are going to uh you know haul a few ceos in front of us for a few show trials it's just not the way you actually get to uh more affordable groceries because as the liberals have been saying in their defense on inflation generally, there are a bunch of uh, global challenges that are impacting food prices worldwide. And, you know, a war in one of the uh, largest grain producing countries is a, a decent chunk of that. And, you know, Gail Weston is not going to uh, be able to give us peace in Ukraine on that, no matter how much uh, Senor Trudeau accuses him of being greedy. And it, it doesn't I, even sound like a show trial. That would be almost fun. This sounds like it's just going to be like a blue ribbon panel to try to save things. But maybe either the, way, like, it's like yeah, oh yeah, very no, much I'm not, like a pop. It's, it's it's populist pandering more than it is a realistic way to bring down grocery prices. They should do populist pandering here because grocery prices are too damn high. Uh, this is not an effective way to do it. They should just spank them and get it over with and make it cheaper. I don't care how, but dragging them before <laughs> Parliament again or before the government is not going to do it. Let's look at the Competition Bureau changes. So the Liberals, as they mentioned, some of these are born out of that report we mentioned that we went into, I don't know, like a month ago. Uh, the Liberals want to have the Bureau with more powers to get info to conduct effective and complete market studies, which it's they can't co- do that already. Is embarrassing so fine uh they want to remove the efficiencies defense from mergers which would allow mergers to survive even if efficiencies will offset the harms to competition um even if consumers face higher prices which again seems fine and positive um we should be focusing on consumer protection first in the in the competition bureau and finally, they want the Bureau to take swift action against collaborations that stifle competition, and they cite the grocery chains preventing smaller ones from getting established, which seems like the exact point of a competition act and a competition bureau. So, Yeah, maybe while they're at it, they could uh, take a look at uh, the uh, for- production of certain staple foods that uh, could use a little competition, perhaps, you know, dairy, eggs, poultry, those sorts of things as well. Like, I don't know, it's just strikes me the whole thing is like incredibly hypocritical. Well, the government ha- is basically running a price-fixing cartel for a bunch of different food stuffs and is just not willing to touch that at all. The conservatives aren't either. The NTP's proposal to amend the It's like the one good thing Matt's in Bernier. 
ever said was uh, going after supply management. Uh, the NDP's changes are subtly different than the Liberals, but they're very different if you listen to them because the Liberals, the NDP says the Liberals are very vague. The NDP, meanwhile, would crack down on price gouging with increased fines, which would be something nice to see. Um, they cite the ones in place in the EU and Australia. They would give the Competition Bureau more tools to prevent corporate mergers to better protect consumers. That's super vague, but sure. And they would make it easier for the Competition Bureau to go after anti-competitive tactics by lowering the threshold from having to demonstrate intent to engage in bad behavior to just demonstrating that the impact of that behavior harmed the sector. Again, like, can we let's just mash all of these up. They all seem decent. Some are a bit vague, and I don't know what they actually mean. But like, it's clear the Competition Act is not fit for purpose in this country because we live in a society of oligopolies, which suggests that we don't have competition. Um, so our act and bureau seem pretty ineffectual at preventing that consolidation and encouraging a healthy marketplace, if that's the kind of society we're going to have. Yeah, we should at the same time also uh, get rid of the barriers to uh, comp competition that come from... Uh various government requirements, whether it's uh, limits on telecoms or uh, supply management as well. There's just a lot to fix. This, they, of, and and launch more crown corporations. Where's our crown grocery store to bring prices down? If a crown uh, telecom brings prices down in provinces that still have them, I want to go to my Government of Canada food store and get my Government Canada branded maple syrup for half the price. It's, once again, low margin business. You, you will save a few dollars a month at most. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>